0: Is books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley,
1: and I'm Peter Sir.
0: and you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Well, Salmon Poetry have been very busy recently, and today we talk to two of their poets, Louise C. Callahan, whose Moonlight, a Full Moon has just come out, and Gina O'Brien. Her collection Stars Burn Regardless has also just come out with Salmon Poetry, so look forward to that.
1: And. A rant in the form of a pretty lacerating portrait of the former president of the US, which was published just after the Capitol attack, which saw Trump supporters desperately attempt to cling on to or extend the Trump presidency. We'll be talking to Chris Agee about his Trump rant.
0: Jean O'Brien has been publishing poetry for nearly three decades. Shadowkeeper, her debut collection, established her as an original poet with a courageous social conscience. The four collections which have followed from the graceful and exact dangerous dresses through to her emotionally expansive fish on a bike, new and selected poems, proved Jean O'Brien to be a gifted poet. And so it's great to have Jean here at the breakfast table this morning to talk about her new book of poems. And it's just out from Salmon Poetry, Stars Burn Regardless. So, Jean, your poetry has always been distinctive for its directness and its honesty, qualities that I think are really on display in this new collection. And there's also an emotional charge, an immediacy of thinking, which locates us quite firmly in the world of your poems. So I thought it would be nice, Jean, if you would start off with a poem from Stars Burn Regardless called In My Mother's Garden, which I think really locates us in a very strong memory from your childhood.
2: Thank you very much, and and Peter, and thank you for inviting me to be here. I'm delighted to talk about my new book. Uh, I'll start the poem now. In My Mother's Garden Excoriating thorns hid behind the bright orange flowers of mother's quince to needle young hands reaching to pluck the lush blossoms. By late autumn, light yellow-green misshapen fruits would swell until finally she would send us out to pick and carry them in a tablecloth to the house. In bed, my sister and I whispered in the dark, alerted by the smell of what we swore was a witch's brew, wafting from the kitchen as she boiled the bitter fruits into something that would cloud and thicken in the night. By morning, the alchemy was complete, and the settled red paste took the place of the colourless flesh. When we took a taste, it made our mouths pucker We always wondered how the magic happened, how squeezing lemon halves, now littering the sink and bubbling the mess for hours in the aluminium pot, usually reserved for the ham at Christmas, could transform the colour and nature of this crooked fruit and cause the astringent stink that made our noses wrinkle. The gritty, plum-coloured mess kept its secret. Safely guarded by our shape shifting mother and those wicked thorns. By next day, everything returned to normal and the scoured pot went back to its usual spot.
0: Oh, thank you, Jean, for that reading of your poem In My Mother's Garden, a poem where your mother, your shape shifting mother, features. Um, I think, Jean, it's fair to say that her early death has deeply impinged on the kind of emotional world of your poetry, hasn't it? And I'm thinking of an earlier poem of yours that I love called Before, which can be found in Fish on a Bicycle, and you can select if anybody wants to find it, where you imagine your mother as a young girl before she became a wife and a mother, and you say, this is a girl of 17, a side view, seated on a swing, hung from a chestnut tree. Her dress hitched by the wind and the poem, suppose in this new book, Stars Burn Regardless, goes back to your mother again, doesn't it? Um, Oh, and Jean is just holding up there a lovely picture of her mother on the swing. Beautiful photograph. So you you return to her again in this new collection. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of your mother?
2: As both before and as is hinted at in this recent poem where I call her my shape-shifting mother, She was mentally ill. She had what was in those days called bipolar. And before her death by suicide, she was a difficult woman to live with. Mm -hmm. And yet at times could be a lovely person. You never knew who you were getting, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, So not only did her death impinge hugely, as anyone who's lost a parent at a young age, and especially just coming into teens, I suppose, or, you know, in, in teens, the the chaos that had, had preceded her death in a way was such a relief that it was over, even though that was mixed up with the grief of losing a parent. So there was an awful lot of conflict. And, you know, I know we shouldn't use poetry as therapy, but for me, it was a great way to explore my feelings around the subject and what had happened and whatever. And I think, as I say, that anyone who has a seismic, Event in their life, you sort of think of before it and after it. You know, everything goes into the before and after box. Despite the fact that it's over fifty years now since my mother died, but in some ways, as I get older and realise that you know she never got past forty, I feel hopefully that maybe I'm living a life she couldn't have lived for her. For
1: her, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Jean.
1: Thanks, Jean, for that. And and. Of course, Gina Bryan isn't the only poet sitting at the breakfast table with us here this morning. We also have the poet Louise C. Callahan, whose fifth collection of poetry, Moonlight, a Full Moon, has just been published by Salmon Poetry. And it's a collection in which we, we enter a world already artfully established in her previous collections, which include The Puzzle Heart, Remember the Birds, In the Ninth House, Dream Paths of a Runaway. And it's a, it's a quiet world where Fleeting moments are captured with, with a precision of language, feeling, and, and thought. And Louise, this new collection, there are there's three parts to it. Um, Murmurations, Kilnamona Chronicle, and Corona. And you're going to start by reading us a poem from that second part, Kilnamona Chronicle, a poem which is very much rooted in, in a memory. If you'd like to tell us maybe a bit about that poem, do you remember? And maybe read it for us.
3: Peter. Thank you both. Yes, this is the middle section, and it's most of the poems in it are from my childhood and teen years. And Kilnemona refers to the house that I grew up in, out on the coast, South Dublin, South County Dublin. And this is very much located in that place, that beloved place where I grew up. And it refers it's addressed to a boy or a child that I used to share a lift home from baby school, you know, when I was three and four. And I discovered very many years later that he'd spent most of his life in an asylum. I think he had suffered from schizophrenia. Do you remember? Do you remember the times we knelt up on the back seat, traveling backwards all the way home from St. Matthias? Our little one-room school in Ballybrack? Your mother was doing the home run. We viewed Tyrrell's fields rushing by as she drove over Harney's bump Mm. and the trickle of river Shangana. We couldn't read that name painted on the marble work gates, nor knew that haze and sun meant those who hewed markers for the dead. Since I lived further, closer to the village, We engined on past the wall of your house. Your mother stopped to drop me off. I peeled my knees off the leather seat and climbed down from her shuddering motor, piping out, goodbye and thank you very much. I skipped in at the side gate, happy that I'd see you again tomorrow. To this summer day, I don't know the tall walls you have lived behind. And continue to live behind a home or asylum since you were 17. But I long to invite you into my memories.
0: Thank you, Louise. That was lovely to hear. And actually, I know that whole area very well, having grown up in Glenagiri, but... So we hear the background to the poem as well. And it's a poem which comes, as Peter said, from the second section, Kilnomona Chronicle, where poems of memory and childhood and humour abound. And I'm thinking of the poem in the red wool coats where two young girls are in full view of the house in the middle of freezing winter day. They take off their knickers and they, I think they put them on their heads, actually, don't they, Louise? And they're born in coats. They're, yeah. they're standing there with defiant They've glee.
3: each other up back to front. <laughs> in their
0: wool coats. It really gets the humour of being young. And there are poems about school life too. There's Mother Frances boxing away, the nativity scene. Yeah, You talk about the beeswax and incense welcoming us young girls back to school. Well, the poet Brendan Kennelly, I always remember he said that by the time you reach the end of your childhood, you'll have had enough experiences to last the whole of your writing life. And as a poet, Louise, you draw very much for inspiration from your younger years Your childhood years, your growing up years, don't you? Very
3: much a mixture. I used to think all my outdoor memories of my childhood are extremely happy, you know, moments of almost ecstasy, and not so Mm -hmm. much the indoor memories. The indoor memories are dark.
0: Right. It's interesting, isn't it? The light and then the darkness. Yeah. And
1: just kind of following on from that, I mean, the three part. Structure, Louise. I'm just wondering when you're preparing your book, uh, you know, getting it ready for publication and that. Were they were they kind of conscious structures that you worked towards? You know, did you set out to write a book in sections like this, or did, did you find that the poems kind of naturally gather themselves under these various kind of headings or sections?
3: Yes, like a like a, a shamrock tree. You know, the the sort of the present. I suppose that I I was forming the book over three years, and really the I think originally it was the sort of contemporary poems were going into the book. And then I wanted a whole section of the past and memories. And I had that, po- that book kind of more or less formed and finished and the pandemic happened. So I think my publishers already had the original the first, three se- the first two sections. So then I started writing more poems, needless to say, during the pandemic. You know, the the quietness and the routine suited my method of working very well. And I had the the formed book already in my head. And so the corona poems kind of took me up to, you know, a month before the book actually came out. So it put all the other poems in in a kind of a very different frame. There was that sense of living with death, really. I think there was an awful lot, a whole, a tremendous sense of death in the Corona series. These various beloved poets died during the pandemic. And I suppose I'm much older, I, I had a sense very much by the end of putting the collection together, that I really wanted my whole life to be in here. And when I said before, I've said to people that I, you know, I might not have another collection. It's not that I'm going to stop writing. I'll write until my mind gives in or I die. But there was very much the sense of a life lived, I think, and... Yeah, with a, actually a very strong sense of
0: death. It's interesting, isn't it, Louise, how a, a collection, you think you're controlling it and, and poems can just appear and it suddenly goes off in another direction completely. But it's yeah. very interesting to hear how that collection came about. And here's hoping that there will be another one, Louise. That would be very nice if there was. Jean, it also seems to me when I was reading through your book that it, it also, like Louise's, has a beautiful symmetry to it. The opening poems still here, for instance, It ends with the words, all still here. And the final poem, Cocooned, also ends with the words, still here. So I did observe that, Gina Bryan. Also, Gina, Louise was there talking about the pandemic. Your opening poem, Still Here, that I just mentioned, it's a really wise poem. And it's saying that there there will be hope, hopefully, after the pandemic. And you say, when all this is over, we must not forget that the forests hold our breath, every leaf a green promise, every bud a gift. They're beautiful words. And did you find, Louis, uh, Jean, that in a way, I know it was a very dislocating time, but did you find that the stillness set the poems flowing for you?
3: Yeah, I I,
2: I enjoyed it. Now, I know that's terrible for people who were in dire straits and for your own self and who lost your lovely mother during it and my sister who lost her son. But for me personally, despite the fear of getting the virus, because I have uh, medical vulnerabilities, I quite enjoyed
0: it. It's <laughs>
2: sort of. It was like time out from your normal life and I
4: quite liked it.
0: Yeah, and I, I remember as well Caroline Duffy, the poet, she invited poets to contribute poems about the pandemic. Not necessarily about the pandemic, but how you were living right now. It was called right, right Now, wasn't it? Yeah, and you contributed a poem to that, didn't you Jean, as well? A few poems actually. I did, yeah. yeah. So there were lots of different projects starting up and people began to view the world in a different way. So I can understand when you're saying you enjoyed it. But yes, it's interesting to hear that. Sort of gave
2: us all time to stop and stare, you know, which I like doing. And I know most poets do like stopping and staring. On it. On time for yeah. that.
0: Yeah. And Louise, in the final section of your book, there is there is a direct simplicity to the lockdown poems. You're a woman jogging around the A4 page of your garden. But you also you are also capturing poems, writing poems which capture the stillness of the world. And I'm thinking of your poem Cartography and Music Inish Man, which reminds us of Tim Robinson. So in a way, Louise, you were also beginning to see the world in a different way, weren't you?
3: I think there was tremendous sense of well, wanting in the book to encompass my whole life from beginning to end and even though there's a a lot of poems in memory poems and poems about death was also wanting to capture tremendous sense of joy in the pleasure of going for a walk the things you encountered and uh, you know as Jean says you know the, the minutiae and the beauty and the preciousness of the ordinary and the everyday. Yeah,
0: There's lovely poems in your collection drawing on nature as well for inspiration, um, which I really enjoyed. But Jean, you've written of your griefs, your losses exposed in soft light, which is a beautiful line. You're You're kind of balancing the dark and the light. And a poem which does this, I think, really successfully is your poem Living at the End of Love. And I was just wondering, would you read that poem for us now? It'd be great to hear it maybe lead us into it as well and explain how the idea came for it.
2: For me anyway, in my mind, it's a sort of an eco-poem. You know, that, that we only have this earth and if we destroy it, we don't have planet B to go off and live on. You know, and just this idea that we need to really appreciate it more and to, you know, just, which we're being told to do all day long and yet and I'm guilty of it too. You know, so wanting the conveniences of modern life and yet they're the very things that seem to be going to bring us down. And I feel that I have lived in a very lucky time, you know, and I'm I'm wondering what kind of world I'd be handing on to my grandchildren. But personally I'm delighted I was born at the time I was born in, because I think that's enough now, as they say. <laughs> you know. Okay, so I'll read it. Living at the end of love. Is like holding a tapestry as it unravels. Its colours smear to a blur of loss. The silks snag, the needles pierce. Your fingers fumble with the slippery threads. We are bereft, erased, annulled. Night comes on in increments, a slow revocation of life. We learn to lean against its narrow sides, hoping it will hold its shape. Bear us up like the depthless dark water holds the night. It needs to energise us with a rage that roars unchecked through the blood and brings us begging to our knees. This is the only place we have to live, this one small foothold. We need to fall in love with it again, see it exotic and wonderful, pick up the loose stitches, tether ourselves even tighter to the sky, perfume the wind with the smell of lust, pour ourselves into the sea, we must take root in the aquamarines, the greens and endless violet sunsets living at the end of love.
0: Thank you, Jean. That was Jean O'Brien reading from her new collection, Stars Burn Regardless, published by Salmon Poetry. Thank you, Jean.
1: Louise, one of the things that comes up in your book is the theme of travel. It's a kind of force throughout moonlight, a full moon, a bee in the old Ruskin Hotel, Marrakesh, the landscape of Capri, journey into Rome in 1964. And in another poem, you're a young student poet in Paris on a summer's day at the Pompidou Centre. So it'd be lovely to hear you read on the way to Santiago, and perhaps you could lead us into it.
3: Yes, Santiago. Wonderful eight days walking from Portugal up north and staying in hostels every night, setting out in the morning, meeting the same people on the route each day, But one day we decided, myself and this German woman, to take a night out and stay in a hotel and have a shower and then catch up the next day. And this poem is about getting a bus at 6 a.m. to catch up with the others on the route. And it's got a little epigraph from Susan Connolly's poem on a similar topic, which goes like this, empty of thought and minds set free on the way to Santiago. The pulse of the engine, the sleepy atmosphere in the bus as it speeds ahead into the dark between one village and the next. No small intimacy sitting so close to someone who is bundled beside you in half sleep. A factory worker, a night nurse. Facing forward were all strangers except Birta. Seated on the aisle opposite me, her eyes shut. Dawn, day seven of our pilgrimage. We've sought a shortcut to Pontevedra. For I am your lady, piped music is cutting softly through from the driver's radio. A song, and I am your man, this response deeper, more vibrato pulsing through me, part physical, part spiritual, mystical.
0: So many thanks to Louise C. Callan there for reading on the way to Santiago from her new collection, Moonlight, A Full Moon. And it just leaves me to say now, many thanks to the poets, Gina Bryan and Louise C. Callan for coming in to talk about their new collections of poetry. Peter and I wish them the very best with their books. And details of both books will be available on www booksforbreakfast.buzzbriot.com
5: Trump rant Trump is mob culture. Trump likes interpersonal power. Trump makes enemies. Trump mocks. Trump is New York. Trump loves the East. Trump hates change. Trump is a grifter. Trump is impermeable. Trump never laughs. Trump loves ranting. Trump is simple-minded but foxy. Foxy. Trump is all subtext. Trump is annoying, coin-operated American airport cart. Trump verbalizes. Trump lies. Trump leverages people too. Trump bullies. Trump is the system gone south. Trump is lazy. Trump was, is bankrupt. Trump is wild and crazy guy. Trump neither cares nor empathizes. Trump is a cultural freak. Trump controls body language of others. Trump is a throwback. Trump is always the victim. Trump is an asshole. Trump is the shrimp salad now. Trump likes McDonald's. Trump has Mussolini issues. Trump is a drama queen. Trump is not new, but old. Trump is a copperhead, natural and historical. Trump is the Duke and King Khan in Huckleberry Finn. Trump is American weird. Trump is frozen adolescent syndrome. Trump is a self-confessed philanderer. Trump is pharaonic, like Robert Moses. Trump was a square. Trump is pure indulgence. Trump is a daddy's boy.
1: Well, that was Chris Agee reading from Trump Rant, which was published by Irish Pages Press last year. So i would introduce Chris first, and then we'll return to the the Rant. So Chris Agee is a poet, essayist, editor and photographer living in Ireland and he holds dual Irish and American citizenship and he spent most of his adult life in Ireland but he was born in San Francisco, grew up in Massachusetts, New York and Rhode Island. He attended Harvard University where he studied with the poet and translator Robert Fitzgerald, I'm thinking the Iliad and the Odyssey, great translation. After graduation he's back in 1979, he's he's lived in Ireland so he spent most of his life here and he's I suppose he intended only to spend a couple of years here but He ended up setting down permanent roots. And I suppose by the mid-80s, his residence in Belfast had become permanent. But I suppose what he's best known these days for is, apart from being a poet, he's also the editor, full-time editor of the journal Irish Pages. Irish Pages is a journal of contemporary Irish writing, and I suppose it's one of Ireland's major literary journals, which he founded back in 2002. And it's just won an award as Small Press of the Year for, for Ireland. Chris's poetry books include In the New Hampshire Woods, First Light, Next to Nothing, Blue Sandbar Moon. And as well, as he's edited various anthologies like Scar on the Stone, contemporary poetry from Bosnia, which came out from Bloodaxe a few years ago, was a Poetry Society recommendation, Unfinished Ireland, essays on Hubert Butler, and The New North, contemporary poetry from Northern Ireland, which came out from Wake Forest University Press, again, a few years back. But we'll come on to Trump rant. I mean, it's an, interesting, it's, it's an interesting book. I mean, it lives up to its name. I mean, it is just what it says. It's a rant in the form of a pretty lacerating portrait of the former president of the US and was published just after the Capitol attack, which saw Trump supporters desperately attempt to cling on to or extend the Trump presidency. And just to give you an idea, I mean, this is what, you know, what has been said about it. What a profusion of insults and vituperation What a cornucopia of abuse, reproach, contempt, disgust, and political and psychological analysis! What an abundance of inventiveness and unfailing imagination and versatility! So that was how the poet Chris Preddle describes it. So, first of all, Chris, I mean, let's just go back to to, to the beginning. I mean, when when you know, I suppose, how did you come? How did you come to write this? When did you write this, and why did you write it?
4: It started on a mobile, a famous mobile, a smartphone. And like everybody else, I became fascinated pretty pretty quickly. Soon after he got into office, I started watching very carefully. And one day I just started writing thoughts down. The first line of the book, Trump is mob culture. And then I just started doing the same thing. Trump is, Trump is, Trump is. Using this kind of copula that, that is for everything. Trump is New York, etc., cetera, et cetera. And um, after a couple, you know, scroll downs of, of this procedure, I realized it started to take shape as a form.
1: I mean, you mentioned this starting off as a text uh, or is it kind of like a mobile text event in a way. But how do you how do you sustain a series of rants over 130 almost pages?
4: Well, that's really interesting. The person who sustained it is the origin of the rant, uh, which is Trump. Of course, rant is a very old English word. It dates from the um, uh, 16th century. Shakespeare uses it. So there has been a tradition of ranting of some sort, like the ranters during the Commonwealth. But the big question after um, the, let us say, the observational psychodynamics, which is leading to each of these lines, is how you sustain it. So in the first instance, it was Trump himself who sustained it. It just get, got worse and worse, ceased to be uh, comical, uh, like a uh, stand-up uh, clown or something, uh, and became more and more dark. So there was an evolution with Trump, which was fascinating me. But the whole principle of the book, it's based on parataxis, which is just one line after another, one line after another. Parataxis meaning just, just juxtaposition of texts. And this allows you to get away from the complexities of writing prose as syntax. It is a poetic work of nonfiction, par excellence. But this principle of parataxis, just juxtaposing lines next to each other, separating into four different sections, also having stanza breaks of a sort. Maybe I would do you know, 15 lines, it would come to me one week, and then total silence for a few months, then more lines. So there is a stanza structure, but the whole thing is based on single lines, imaginatively and poetically uh, composed, just juxtaposed next to each other. And within the lines, there's all sorts of things. You know, there's alliteration, there is punning, there's natural rhyming. And of course, every line begins, every line, as you heard, begins with a Trumpists, Trump's kids, Trump's followers, Trump. And guess what that, after a while, reminded me of of a drum roll. Uh, trochaic, always trochaic. Stress on the thirst. Somehow that fit Trump. So overall, it combines two things. This principle of, of parataxis, and it's a kind of per- pervasive, percussive music, which reminds one of... A tattoo in the military sense. It's just banging on, like marching. And this comes back to the idea that he has kind of launched a civic civil war. So somehow this response, very unusual for me, led to something that fitted the Trump the Trumpian experience at a distance. Trump
5: likes pre-feminist Eastern women. Trump likes Israel's ethnostate, Arabs as Blacks. Trump is Faustian. Trump is faux Protestant. Trump is the defenestration of decency. Trump issued fake certificates. Trump likes his name on towels. Trump is worse than Bibi. Trump loves comb over. Trump is the Republic's Mephistopheles. Trump is a catastrophe. Trump is we, the mob. Trump is insecure. Trump speaks no languages, not even English. Trump is the jackass in the White House. Trump hates being one-upped, like in Northern Ireland. Trump is colossal, brittle ego. Trump is angry man. Trump hates change, post-68. Trump wants it all back. Trump is ungrate Gatsby. Trump loves spectacle. Trump is spectacle. Trump loves tacky spectacle. Trump is empty. Trump is vast carelessness. Trump is snake oil. Trump flourishes. Trump glories. Trump struts like a cockerel or a cock. Trump struts and preens like a queen. Trump is political drag. Trump is the moment. Trump is pure ego. Trump loves libel as self-revelation. Trump is nasty agency. Trump is interest figurehead. On ship of state. Trump bluffs by bluster. Trump is ranting gossip. Trump is...
1: Obviously because, you know, the book is your view of of Trump and Trumpists and Trumpistan, if you like. And some might say that that makes it a kind of a... It's like a historic document or it's placed in a particular Trumpian moment. But I suspect you'd argue against that. I suspect you'd argue that this isn't just... Um, historic. I mean, just to look at the political kind of element for a second. I mean, do you think there's a, conti- the, you know, the continuing danger of Trump and Trumpism? Is that a live kind of thing? I mean, or, or is that moment past? do you think?
4: He definitely has a chance to win a second election. The thing that probably will sink him is his response to Ukraine, which united um united both both parties in the united states at least temporarily i i I do see it as a historical record i would have to say that i think historians will be interested in it because it's literally in chronological order so it's kind of in real time i did do some switching of lines towards the end but basically it's just as my mind is 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 responding now one has a lot of thoughts during the day but generally speaking one of these lines would come more or less finished and I would just put it into the red. So it is, an, it is a kind of historical record in the sense that, for instance, QAnon is mentioned very early before that came out and all sorts of other things like that. So it is a historical record, but clearly it's a window on the, 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 the swerve towards authoritarianism in the United States. And that is been building up as becomes very clear in, in the, the Trump brand itself. It's been building up since the late 60s.
1: I'm interested, yeah, because I mean, and I'm interested, Chris, like in the way that you've structured it, for instance, I mean, you, I mean, you, as you say, it's, you, you kind of follow the cycle, the course of the presidency. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's divided into different parts. So you have, for instance, a midterm report, you have a third year addendum, Trump and Trump's and more Trump's, and you have a final report, you know, a work in continuous progress. And then it seems to be over, but then there's another part, you know, the final addendum and, and so on. But it's so it's in these kind of um, I mean that's 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 the way it is, which is structured. that You're following the course of the of the presidency and commenting kind of angrily as it's proceeding is not the kind of method.
4: It's dated, so midterm report is the first two years, and they had in mind the midterm elections. Yeah. But as the thing develops, there's, a, you know, I grew up at the same time as Trump was in New York. It becomes a lot about my own past before I went to Ireland, especially going to school, in school, in high school. So the midterm report started to develop an ironic air, like, this is a teacher. <laughs> yeah. Report. Because I think one of the things about what I like about this rant, it's definitely a rant, um, is the, the whole theme of culture as an education. Yeah. So I grew up in a very prosperous part of New York, in, in, right on the edge of the Bronx. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Trump grew up in a well-off area in Queens, the same area as mm-hmm. Joe Michi, Yeah, And a uh, very mob-suffused area. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, it, uh, it, the whole uh, process of writing the rant, as it develops, you know, I start watching on the media, and then I start remembering the 60s. So it's full of '60s images, reflections, and so forth, and it becomes an excavation of my childhood past, my own American past. So this this past had become kind of like a frozen, a frozen self, a severed self, which often happens with immigrants. You go somewhere, and you start a completely new life, and in a certain sense, the severed self preserves a very good memory of what was there uh, before you left, because it's not over. Uh, Ridden by other American experience, so it becomes an excavation of Trump's formation and my pro- formation at the same time, and uh, wow. all sorts of ways.
1: I'm conscious of the fact that you know we're we're recording this as we are in the midst of of a world crisis with Putin's attack on on, on the Ukraine, and of course Trump is on record as saying that he thinks Putin is is, is a genius. The, the extent to which a, a crisis like that isn't just Some sort of abstract thing. It's a personal thing. We all we all feel it. We're all implicated in it. We're all implicated in it, kind of socially, economically, emotionally, because the nature of the world changes changes before our eyes. And so we're 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 all we're all deeply implicated in events like that. I mean, are you would you be pessimistic for the future? Could you see yourself writing a Putin rant?
4: No, not really, because it has that personal emotion.
1: And is he is is somebody like you? I mean, is is somebody like, in a, sense, in, a, in a way, Trump seems to invite satire. Are some figures beyond satire, do you think? I mean, is, you know, and is satire, does poetry or literature have a role in combating the kind of tyranny that, say, Putin represents?
4: Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. Words matter. That's the one thing that Ireland and Irish poetry, especially being based in the North, taught me. Language matters. One of the key problems with the United States now is the language has gotten completely out of hand. Uh, It's become very aggressive, as I say in one of the lines, Trump has launched a civic civil war. Therefore, language is, of course, very important. I don't see myself at the moment writing any other rant. I started a little bit with Boris, but it didn't quite work out. But I do think, just to come back to that point, I do think the po- the, the book is a kind of real-time record of the psychodynamics of a poet recording this phenomenon of Trump. But it also moves through other zones of my experience, um, authoritarian drift and democratic deficit in Ireland, of course, in the north.
1: I'm wondering about reaction to this, Chris, Your reaction to your Trump rant. I mean, did you, I mean, I'm mean, particularly interested I mean, did you get any kind of reaction um, from it? I mean, I'm, let's let's assume that Trump himself hasn't read it. We, we never, you we, we can't tell. I presume it, did you send him a copy? Uh,
4: not yet. The American group, we got a massive list to go out. Um, uh, I haven't. I've been so busy. they just started to go out in UK and Ireland. There has been a response to the Irish Echo, had a nice little profile, and some came in, but it is going out to the United States. So I'm very curious
1: to see what kind of reaction it'll get from people in the States.
4: Well, I am going to send it. We are going to send it to some Congress people. Right. Like, um, what's her name? Lynn Cheney? Yeah. She'll like it. (laughs) And the Friends of Ireland group, congressional group, 60 Irish-American
1: I I, I, presume, I presume there's a few people out there who won't like oh, it.
4: Oh, it. it will split the p- opinion, politically, and also, I would say, possibly within Ireland, because I do view it as a very Irish work. It is part of Irish poetry. I am an Irish citizen. Uh, so some people won't like this kind of combination of...
1: So we're not going to... Okay, so we're not going to see you in court. Okay, well, I, I, we're going to have to leave it at that, Chris, because... But uh, uh, just to say to people, that that was... Chris Ag talking about his his book Trump Rant, Christopher or Ag on Donald J Trump, and it's available um, from the Irish Pages Press. So thanks, Chris, for telling us about that.
0: We I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee, and I'm Enda Wiley, and I've Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again?
1: Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to
0: com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.